to have a four-week disruption to the digital infrastructure and data that we now completely rely on in every single layer of our business lives as well as our personal lives, it would cost the economy the equivalent to three quarters of the annual defence budget and around about 40% of the annual federal health budget. The conversation around digital risk and privacy risk was something that was resonating far more easily with everyday businesses than the conversation around cybersecurity. You can't apply the typical business continuity types of responses to a significant digital disruption. How can you trust that those devices are doing what you need them to do and not several other things at the same time? They are incredibly quick, they are very easy to spin up and they're also very easy to pivot if they fall out of favour with the general community because there has been discoveries made around whether or not we can trust them. As soon as you squash one syndicate, another one will spring up with 16,000 more heads. So, you know, inventing quantum encryption, that is just incredible here in this country like we did Wi-Fi, but also the Pineline Splice. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Catherine Manstead, and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. Those comments you just heard were from Michelle Price, and we'll be back to hear more on all things trust, cybersecurity and digital ecosystems right after this message. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Today on the National Security Podcast, we're joined by Michelle Price, the CEO of OstCyber. Formerly, Michelle has a long history in the Australian government and also a short stint with us at the National Security College as our cybersecurity lead. Michelle was also the architect of Australia's first cybersecurity strategy released in 2016. Uh, Michelle, we're very lucky to have you here today and welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Catherine. It has been wonderful to come back in these circumstances where we can still physically distance each other. Thank you. Well, you were part of the first cybersecurity strategy and Australia is about to release its second national cybersecurity strategy. I was reading through OSCYBER's submission to that process and I noted uh, that in there, OSCYBER is described as not only globally unique, but also our nation's not-so-secret weapon. Um, could you tell us a little bit about OSCYBER's role and just why it is so unique, uh, not just to Australia, uh, but in terms of global standards? It is wonderful to talk about OSCYBER and, of course, those who know me know that I'm no short of any words to describe what OSCYBER does. We are one of six industry growth centres under the Federal Department of Industries uh, Industry Growth Centres Initiative uh, that was born out of the National Innovation and Science Agenda back in 2015. We were the most recent growth centre to be born out of that process, though, and we were, of course, born through uh, the cybersecurity strategy that I helped design and deliver. Uh, and so it is all about creating industry uh, in globally competitive areas, and cybersecurity is absolutely one of those. So my job uh, in leading OSCYBER is to grow a cybersecurity industry that is not only globally competitive, but focused on the capability types that we need from a sovereign point of view to be able to defend and protect our nation. Uh, so we do lots of different things uh, to be able to do that. But in terms of that globally unique standing that OSCYBER has, the reason why we can claim that is because as part of that economic development angle, we are the only organisation that is structured and funded the way we are around the world. And so our mission being to create that industry for cybersecurity, being done through a non-profit entity that is a corporate entity 
but funded by government. Uh, that's what makes us unique. And so having the independence of public funding within a private corporate structure uh, is actually quite freeing. And uh, we use that to our ability every day to be able to foster those capability types that the country needs, but to also be able to grow jobs and revenue from it as well. So you mentioned Cyber is, it's not profit, it's industry-led, but it also has the national interest at heart in in particular focus on the sovereign capabilities we need. What does the experience of Cyber and um, organisations like it tell us about the relationship between industry and between government in the information age and in the digital age? Is it, has it always been thus, I guess, that industry tries to work with government for the national interest? Or is there something new about the shape that we're seeing industry policy and the involvement of industry and government moving forward um, in the particular circumstances, geopolitical, strategic that we face today? I do think that the industry age has fostered a new type of public-private partnership. And I think that all nations are still getting used to what kinds of contexts we find ourselves in around that. So we are still with our training wheels on, and that's not just Australia. Uh, I don't think that there's any nation that's really getting it right, to be honest. Uh, All of the different circumstances that each nation faces around what they do do well around globally competitive endeavours within the global economy versus what they need to do for their society for safety and security – means that it is really dynamic. And uh, so I think Australia can cut itself some slack in that regard. I guess where we see that there is significant opportunity for cybersecurity to provide a great example on how to do that advancement of a public-private partnership is, of course, that cyber is that horizontal enabler. Every sector of the economy needs cybersecurity and also privacy. And so to be able to get the public-private partnership right in cybersecurity also means that we're getting it right in some respects for every other sector. We know now because of all of the sort of interconnectedness of the information age and what it gives our economy, but also gives the national security endeavour, it means that we really do have to trust each other. We're all on the same side of the of the job, so to speak, to be able to pr- protect and defend, but also see our societies prosper. When we sit on the light side of the equation, of course, the adversary would say something different. But uh, that public-private partnership really is changing the culture around how we go forward in an information age where we actually can't see the end point of those infinite use cases that come out of technology and the way that humans engage with it. You mentioned a buzzword there, trust, which I want to come back to in a moment because uh, Cyber has just put out a big report on that topic. But I did want to just uh, go to this notion of the connection between prosperity for the broader economy and the development of sovereign capabilities, particularly in cyber. And I noted there's a statistic that uh, Cyber's just put out, which says that for every dollar of procurement or every dollar of procurement spent on local cyber companies, I assume that's government procurement dollars, that returns $4.7 in direct revenue and $5 in spillover benefits like job creation to the Australian economy. Um, and I guess in no more time than in these COVID times when we're all thinking about supply chain security, what it means to have sovereign capability, is it also useful to think about the dual um, prosperity, security um arguments uh, that also uh, are relevant here as well. But let's go to trust and Australia's digital trust report that was just put out in July by Ostcyber. That report headlines that it's going to tell us about the devastating impacts of digital disruption on Australia's economy and on public trust. Just how concerned should we be about digital disruption, both in economic and trust terms? And why is it important to think about something that's a little bit soft and perhaps less traditional like trust uh, along as, at the same time as we think about harder concepts like um, economic loss and operational certainty? Well, it's, I think uh, it comes back to whether or not we can see the upside in risk. Uh, and for colleagues who would know my work in government before I started doing the cybersecurity strategy, I was uh, the architect for the world's first uh, national security strategic risk framework. Uh, and in those days, uh, you know, in those days, it's only going back to sort of 2011, 2012, uh, under the uh, national security strategy that was developed by the previous government. Uh, you know, there was a lot around uh, the threat landscape. 
there was not so much about the risk landscape that results from that threat landscape. So to be able to articulate not just what the risks were that result from threats being in existence and how they might impact Australia and Australia's endeavours in the world, it was also introducing a concept into the national security community that looked at the opportunity or in the commercial context of the economy that's upside risk. Uh, and it was completely and entirely appropriate for, to have a lot of opposition uh, to that concept because, of course, the national security community is very much engaged almost 100% of the time on badness for very good reason. Uh, and so when we look at the concept of trust uh, and how you value trust, whether that's valuing it from uh, a community perspective and that intrinsic human value that we assign to trust and all of its shades of grey, but also to assign an economic value to that trust, it's a very, very difficult thing to do. Uh, and in fact, it's why it really hadn't been done before for cybersecurity. So again, using that cybersecurity sort of use case, if you like, on what it could look like for the rest of the economy both in terms of, uh, you know, the jobs and revenue creation, but also what's at stake. I'd say that absolutely we do need to be concerned. But first and foremost, I'd like uh, listeners to think about the, uh, I guess, intersection of that opportunity with the concern. It does demonstrate that if we were to have a four-week disruption to the digital infrastructure and data that we now completely rely on in every single layer of our business lives as well as our personal lives, it would cost the economy uh, the equivalent to three quarters of the annual defence budget and around about 40% of the annual federal health budget. So when we put that into today's context, when we're facing a pandemic and we're seeing a second wave as this goes to air, um, but, you know, health officials will say it's actually our first wave, uh, these figures actually really are quite tangible. To look at the fact that 1.5% of GDP could be wiped off the bottom line of Australia if we were to have that four-week disruption and would cause 163,000 jobs to come out of the economy as a result. Now, that to me says that absolutely we should be concerned. It says that our digital infrastructure and data is not secure enough. It's not resilient enough to attack and to disruption. But it's also a huge opportunity when we've already stated in uh, OSCYBER's sector competitiveness plan for cybersecurity that we do have globally competitive capabilities that we're producing and exporting. It's a means to amp that up. It's a means to be able to say in an interconnected global economy, sovereignty matters more than ever. But so does making sure that we choose the right partners in those supply chains and value chains that we cannot escape. So sovereignty, in my mind, does not mean self-reliance. Sovereignty means that we will stand up for and fight for what's important to Australia's values and our pursuits economically as well as from a community point of view, but we'll do that intelligently and in a sophisticated way that leverages those globally competitive capability creation and innovation uh, to be able to then turn back on ourselves and grow those jobs. And that's why that figure of almost $10 for every dollar that government spends on procuring from local companies, where those local companies can provide world-leading examples of capability, is so important because especially at, the, at this time, as you mentioned, when governments are very focused on the unemployment rate and how much of an economic disruption we're experiencing as well as a health risk, uh, that, that 10x return is pretty attractive, I would suggest. But it's not just for governments. That's also the case for larger business. Uh, and it provides a model of how we can come out of this and recover across a whole range of industries that we probably undervalued before now. You mentioned, of course, that the COVID-19 moment is really putting a spotlight on a lot of issues raised in the report from uh, you know, our reliance on digital ecosystems in this physically distanced world through to the focus on jobs in a, in a time of economic downturn. I wonder if there is some uh, timing in the report that was intentional or just accidental in a good way because it occurs to me that if something with the with the topic trust is going to get a lot more eyeballs on it these days after we've seen the debilitating effects of lack of trust uh, as a result of COVID-19. Of course, we go through in Australia waves of panic buying of toilet paper, which is a kind of a, an indicia of when there is a lack of trust in the community about what our leadership is doing. And of course, the spread of conspiracy theories online, which can have some really damaging impacts on public health and individual health outcomes. So, we know that trust and the absence of it is is really bad. Is that something that was in the back or even front of mind as you were writing this report? 
It was very much front of mind. And actually, the report um, is based on the actual narrative of the, of the report is, is all about the sort of uh, insights that we've taken from the modelling that we did with Synergy Group Australia. We decided to approach them back in November, actually, and the impetus for the report was uh, obviously long before bushfires and floods and drought uh, and, well, you know, the sort of, I guess, um, train wreck that sort of has happened to, to middle Australia, um, and I mean geographically middle Australia in terms of that drought, flood, fire situation. Uh, but then also uh, what flow has flowed on from that in terms of the pandemic. Back in November, what we wanted to do was to create a different kind of conversation as the cybersecurity strategy was being finalised by Home Affairs. We had a gut feel that, you know, there was probably going to be a finalising of the strategy through February, March, and that the strategy itself would be launched sometime in March, April. So we wanted to develop a report um, that provided new data around a piece that was missing from our sector competitiveness plan, which was that piece around jobs. Uh, there's plenty of data around about revenue and it depends on what lens you apply to that modelling as to where you arrive on uh, the revenue side of things. Uh, and, you know, we were able to build upon the work that Data61 and Alpha Beta did uh, back in 2018 uh, and arrive at a, a much larger figure, which uh, demonstrates that, you know, that $236 billion worth of value that is coming from digital activity in the economy every year. But to be able to demonstrate what that means in jobs, uh, that was the first time that the country's been able to have that data, but be able to take that a step forward and show what would it look like if we had a one-week disruption and then a four-week disruption in terms of the ability of the country to recover and what kinds of impacts that would have on trust. Now, the reason for all of that was not only to help government if it chose to accept the help uh, around what kind of a narrative it could have for the strategy, it actually came out of the fact that, of course, we are working in industry every day. We are part of industry, even though we're publicly funded. And it didn't matter where we were going across the past sort of three years of Ossiba's life. The conversation around digital risk and privacy risk was something that was resonating far more easily with everyday businesses than the conversation around cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is the enabler to that conversation. It's the, it provides the solutions in the products and services that the cybersecurity industry provides. But in terms of actually getting that traction around what cybersecurity means to everyday businesses, that was around digital risk. And so then we kind of thought, well, from an advocacy point of view, not just in terms of industry growth, but in terms of Australia's position in the world, it had to be about digital trust. How deep is the trust in our systems and how is how far is it in terms of uh, its, I guess, automatic assigning of trust from everyday people? Of course, when we take an iPhone out of the box or we take an Android phone out of the box, most consumers just trust that the chipset is okay, that the supply chains and the value chains and the testing that have gone into that um, mean that we can trust that our data and our voices being tra uh, travelling through all of those devices is quite good. Um, so, you know, I think that in all of that, what we wanted to be able to show was that you can't apply the typical business continuity types of responses to a significant digital disruption, that we would see a situation where it was possible to conceive of digital trust breaking. And that's indeed what the report shows, that it is a four-week disruption that would cause trust to break in the Australian community in our digital infrastructure and the data that it carries. That would take much, much longer than just a couple of months to, ret um, to return to uh, op full operations as what we've seen out of some of the big cyber breaches and compromises in the Australian economy over the past 12 months. I understand the report's focusing on this notion of a large-scale digital disruption and you always need, when doing things like this, to focus on where you're going to deploy your modelling dollars. Have you put any thought into or do you have observations around the notion of trust decay by death by a thousand cuts, as it were, because it, you know, it's tax time in Australia and when tax time comes around, all of us are facing, it seems, weekly attempts to scam us, uh, whether that's via text scams, mobile scams, email scams. You need to only flick on the news to see things that might 
eat away at your trust in the digital environment, be that another online love scam or, you know, more perniciously, we had the Prime Minister out in early July telling us about a sophisticated nation-state actor that was aggressively targeting a number of industries in Australia. Now, all of those things, to me, um, lead to digital scepticism rather than digital trust. Is there a way to, to model those small incremental uh, problems with trust or a way to think about that that informs our cyber security policy but also our broader digital um, economy policy um, more generally? Absolutely. And, you know, it actually goes down to those basics that we all kind of might do a bit of a sigh over because it's it's a bit like those messages of cyber hygiene. If you get the cyber hygiene right, then actually sort of 90% of your issues are kind of solved. Uh, it, it is the boring stuff. Um, to people like me, though, if you've studied it, it's actually hugely exciting and you can kind of nerd out on it. But um, what I'm getting at here, of course, is behavioural economics. Uh, what are the things that motivate people to care? And so, you know, I give a lot of presentations uh, around the world every year uh, and increasingly, of course, that's digitally uh, through podcasts and webinars at the moment. Uh, and I'm often asked, what is the one thing that you would see change if you had, you know, that extra dollar or you have that extra million dollars or you just had the opportunity to ask people to do things differently? Every single time my answer to that question is we need people to care more. They're only going to care more if there are the right incentives within the economy and within society to change behaviour. And for many of us, it is now about changing behaviour. It's not about growing good behaviours like what, you know, when we go to primary school and we're told that we should wash our hands after going to the bathroom. That's now really important in a pandemic. Uh, it's, it's much the same. It's that what is going to drive you? Uh, as Catherine behind one microphone and me, Michelle, behind the other microphone, what drives us is quite different. There'll be commonalities uh, and we can get down to even things like what kinds of colours would drive us to do different behaviours in different occasions. Some people see red as passion, other people see red as danger. You know, it's it's that kind of stuff. It genuinely is. And so when we look at some of the studies that have been done in, I guess you could say, similar kinds of societies elsewhere in the world, uh, there was a study done around that death by a thousand cuts thing on cyber in California back in, I think it was 2013, around breach notification, uh, where it was law in California that every time your email address or your name or your home address or that of any of your family members or people living at that address had been breached or compromised, the organisation who held your data, not necessarily the victim or the perpetrator, but whoever held that data of the data set or the database that had been compromised or breached, had to send you a letter. So didn't send you an email, had to send you a letter. And it was shown in that study that there were some homes within California, particularly Los Angeles and um, San Francisco, that were receiving up to 38 letters a week. You could kind of wallpaper your house Deutschmark <laughs> style <laughs> during hyperinflation with those. Indeed. So do you think that that's getting cut through? No, of course, they were getting put straight into the recycling bin and it actually showed some behaviours around whether or not homes were recycling well or not. And so there's some really interesting things that we can learn from that. But first and foremost, it's about incentives. So you made a point much earlier in the, in the uh, discussion about, uh, you know, why would people do things differently around something that you can't necessarily touch and feel? Well, I'd argue that now it is becoming more and more physical every day. We're seeing the physical impacts happening in our lives because of our dependencies on the digital world. Uh, so this sense of digital economy, I have to go back to when Malcolm Turnbull was communications minister and he said, you know, that we don't have a digital economy, the economy is digital. He actually pulled back on that statement when he was prime minister, I think because he had recognised that we hadn't as governments gotten the language right around what that actually means. But I think we now need to push that further a lot uh, in terms of that public policy development piece. We have learned a lot as a society over the past five years, particularly in terms of how it plays out in that relationship between national security and the economy. Uh, and so, you know, I've argued on this campus before that there is no such thing as national interest anymore because we will never see a separation in the way that the current concept of national interest segregates national security from the economy that it is actually economic security that we're in the pursuit of now because economic security enables our society to live the way that we choose collectively for it to live. If economic security exists, we necessarily will have national security and vice versa. So this really intrinsic relationship does come back to, again, those behaviours 
that we value and therefore will be interested in pursuing if we're demonstrated that there's some kind of return to us through those incentives to engage in those behaviours. And at the moment, we don't have that right. So I do think that the trust quotient, we can move on from it being around uh, whether or not there is a cybersecurity quotient to now there being a trust quotient. And we've demonstrated through this report that you can place an economic value on that. I know that there are some economists in Australia that can't wait to have the debate in the tax system about intangible assets. Uh, It's also intrinsic assets. Uh, The intrinsic assets are about trust and whether or not we will open the box of the device of whatever it is, whether it's an iPhone or it's an Android phone because we won't be brand, um, you know, specific, although I think I have demonstrated (laughs) by which one I say first that I have a preference for from a security point of view. But it doesn't really matter now if you're opening up a phone box or you're actually opening up a drone box and that that drone doubles as a microsatellite or anything that you can possibly imagine, new headphones to start up a podcast, microphones, whatever it is, how can you trust that those devices are doing what you need them to do and not several other things at the same time? There's so much to unpack in there. But I think, firstly, I think it's a a very intriguing point around the decline of national interest as a useful term. And it's something we speak a lot about on this podcast, the collapsing and blurring of traditional distinctions between security and economics, and also between uh, defence, which people often think of as an elite practice done by the ordained few in a defence force or inside government, and also the interests of the broader community, mums and dads, Australians with jobs, everyone who's participating in that economy, which I would agree with you and communications minister era Turnbull, uh, (laughs) that the economy is digital. But I think, as you said, it's all about that narrative because still, perhaps when we think of the digital economy, we think of things like e-commerce, things that are explicitly digital. But as you alluded to, everything is digital now. And if you're working in the mining sector or if you're working in a bricks and mortar, um, uh, you know, real world uh, retail centre, it's still totally powered by digital, um, which perhaps in the post-COVID world is something that all of us will start to recognise more. Um, And I just want to take you to one line in the report, which I found super chilling on this point, which says that you're talking about COVID and you're talking about the way in which our digital uh, infrastructure has proved absolutely vital to Australia's resilience at this time. But The report says it's not clear if Australia could have sustained or could have survived a sustained, serious or scaled digital disruption at the same time as the economic hibernation caused by the pandemic. Um, And given that when sorrows come, they come not in single spies, but in battalions, I thought that was that was chilling because it, you know, we've we've got away with it this time. But what but what happens next time? And you mentioned before that we're maybe not at the stages of resilience we need to be. What would be your top three things in terms of resilience or in terms of security that we as a nation need to do so that next COVID plus a cyber incident or next whatever it is, disaster plus a digital disruption, um, we can survive? Top three, goodness. Okay, I'm going to start first and foremost with the big hands kind of stuff, uh, and that's the public-private partnership. I think that we need to focus on that with so much urgency uh, and build trust again. Uh, We got to a point, I think, in sort of 2016, 2017, when that cybersecurity public-private partnership was really starting to be fostered. We've seen some of that be challenged, I think, for a whole range of different circumstances uh, that are largely global in nature. But I also think that, uh, you know, that public-private partnership can't just stick to the industry of cybersecurity or the practice of cybersecurity. When we accept that cybersecurity is needed across every fabric of every sector of the economy and the community, then actually that public-private partnership needs to be dramatically broadened out. Uh, And I do believe that there's a whole range of organisations across the economy who are already equipped, as well as those across the community who are already equipped to be able to uh, incentivise that behavioural change to have people care about what they are doing online, as well as what the implications of that online activity are for the physical world. Uh, And so, you know, I give a great uh, sort of example that's quite practical there. 
when we look at match fixing in local sporting organisations, and there was an inquiry done in New South Wales, I think it was last year or the year before, around children's sport being used for max, mat, uh, match fixing and to be able to earn money of children as young as seven years old playing football around um, New South Wales. Uh, and you link that through to how did they get that data? Well, the database, of course, was under scrutiny around how all of the registrations for those um, code competitions uh, were being done to enable the information, the data sets, uh, which were actually quite open source. It was because there was lax security. Uh, so when we take that local example and how straightforward it would be to empower local community groups to be able to educate their members in a member-based organisation like sporting clubs, well, those members are parents and those parents and their kids go to schools and then we cross over into the school environment to empower schools to have that same common set of messages around what why it is that we need to care about the different things that we're doing in the online world that have implication for the physical world. So that's kind of some grassroots things right up to how we have coordination at the national level to prevent fragmentation, uh, to have the patch protection or the turf protection. Uh, we need patch protection in the digital world, but, you know, uh, that, that sort of turf protection kind of mentality. Uh, this is a team sport in cybersecurity, and many have said that before. I've just said that. Uh, but that's how we strengthen trust and then strengthen that resilience to be able to respond quicker when something happens. I think number two would then also have to be to place value on those incentives, those incentives that drive people to care in a sustained way. Because of course, we know ultimately humans will take the, you know, the path of least resistance. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean that we're lazy. But if we've ticked the box today, are we going to tick the box again tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the day after? Because that is what is needed in a cyber physical world to look after our own protections as well as the protections of the organisations that we live and breathe and work for uh, and what those organisations return to us in terms of our livelihoods. Uh, so being able to place greater value on those incentives means that we actually need to have a national conversation around what those incentives actually are. And they're incredibly dynamic and very complex uh, because, of course, me being employed as the CEO of OSCyber today, well, I'm also a mum uh, and my, my kids do play soccer and all of those things. So there's lots of context within my daily life across that few examples that I've just given there. That's before we even get into the COVID situation of having hybrid work arrangements of working from home when my company relies on me to have the right kinds of protections on my home router and for me to properly use the VPN service that we have in place through my company and all of my employees as well. Uh, so as a small business that is also a startup for startups, as we used to say, we're now for startup for startups and scale-ups at Ossiber. Um, that ricochet effect through value chains is what I'm just demonstrating there. I'd say the third piece, of course, is the great stuff that's called great cyber hygiene. And so we all can do some very straightforward and simple things to make it harder for those malicious actors that do want to cause us harm, whether it's in tax time or it's in bushfires or it's in a pandemic that is about to have its first official wave. You know, um, there are really straightforward things that everyone can do, uh, including kids, and often the kids know how to do it better than the mums and dads and the grandparents, but look out for each other. Help each other to learn what those basic uh, practices are, like being able to know what the password is to your router and changing that password away from being admin, which is what it normally is, or four zeros, um, making sure that you've got a password manager so you can have unique long passwords for every instance that you have online, uh, and making sure that you do engage with uh, websites that have you know, the right kinds of security certificates and only shopping from those kinds of sites, uh, making sure that the kinds of uh, providers of services online do have at least two-factor authentication and even better if they've got multi-factor authentication. These are choices that everyday people can make every day. As someone who's made some bad choices, reflecting on your advice there, Michelle, I'm going to use this as a break, an ad break, um, so that I can lower my head in shame. And while that <laughs> happens, um, we'll be back in just a minute uh, for more on trust and security on the National Security Podcast. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Michelle, we went to the break then talking about what might make ordinary Australians care about cybersecurity because ultimately this is a team sport and it's not something that government can swoop in on their shiny horse to protect us all. It's something that all of us need to take responsibility for. And putting that into conversation with the news cycle just recently, one thing I suspect some mums and dads around Australia might be thinking about at the moment is the way in which their kids engage with social media. So TikTok has been in the news recently. It's something that over a million Australians, most of them under the age of 25, are using. And I imagine if I was a parent of a kid that age, I would be quite worried about the news and the security concerns being aired in the commentariat and also coming out of um, different members of parliament as well. When we're talking about trust, it's one thing that widget A does what it's expected and that it doesn't lead to a breach of our data. But there are other trust questions online, particularly around social trust and how we engage with each other and the messages that we receive. Um, how are you thinking about that more, I guess, esoteric na- uh, nature of trust? Maybe it's not even a type of trust that can be measured as an intangible or an intrinsic good um, from an economics perspective, but it's certainly something that has an impact on national security. Do we need to broaden that trust conversation out a bit to capture um, social uh, interactions as well and some of the more pernicious uh, aspects of censorship, manipulation and disinformation online as well? Absolutely. I think we have to. Uh, you know, you give a you give a room full of actuaries a task and they'll come up with a solution. I think uh, we really do because otherwise we won't be able to demonstrate whether or not the funding that we're using, particularly from a public point of view, so public funding, uh, into being able to manage the info wars as, you know, sort of the the commentariat refers to it as, but perhaps more specifically from a policy point of view, how we manage the issues of sovereignty in a cyber-physical world and what that means for things like foreign interference, which are very topical at the moment, uh, and foreign interference having all of the different machinations um, that it does have, including electoral interference, uh, you know, sort of the, the kind of disinformation that we can see happening in social media channels that can lead to quite perverse and tragic outcomes, particularly like what we've seen uh, in some instances of terrorism. And so, you know, this this kind of uh, valuing of what these, uh, the broadening uh, definitions around trust are critically important, I think, to know whether or not we are investing in the right areas, whether or not that investment is enough or whether or not, and I actually don't think we could have too much investment going into these areas, but it's whether or not it's then being coordinated uh, to anticipate in a more informed way what could be coming down the pipeline. Uh, you know, because it's not enough anymore to just say that because something like a, a, a TikTok platform is manufactured or was produced out of one country uh, and being uh, sort of, you know, circulated around the world in very clever, using actually behavioural economics to be able to get its audience and its user base uh, to be able to be uh, dedicated regardless of what, uh, you know, the sort of older generations might be saying about its value and what it could lead to. Uh, you know, again, it comes down to what are the incentives that uh, ensure that a 25-year-old, for argument's sake, is going to continue to use TikTok even though, as a rational adult now, uh, they can see all of the cons, uh, you know, the social pressures of the pros of still using it for a bit of a laugh or to be able to, uh, you know, get those likes or to be able to share information about the issues that you care about. Uh, Well, I would say, to run interference on that, uh, you know, there should be capability development going into an alternative. Uh, and, you know, some of my 12-year-old sons, uh, you know, friends have said, well, I'm not going to use TikTok, but my mummy does or my daddy does. Uh, and so, again, how do you role model the right kinds of behaviours? Well, you can have lots of lengthy conversations about what right is in this equation 
All I know at the end of the day is that I don't want my children or my brothers and sisters or my parents or my grandparents to be in harm's way that can be pushed through these kinds of channels. They are incredibly quick. Uh, they are very easy to spin up and they're also very easy to pivot if they be, if they fall out of favour with the general community because there has been discoveries made around whether or not we can trust them. Uh, and of course, every time it's like that age-old story in cybercrime, as soon as you squash one syndicate, another one will spring up with 16,000 more heads uh, than what we had anticipated before. Uh, and of course, everyone can read about uh, what happened to the Silk Road on the dark net and how, um, you know, that the FBI with colleagues across the world were able to have a coordinated attack against the Silk Road. And now we've got 16 versions of it and probably many, many more that have sprung up as a result of it being squashed. And so we have to find some kind of a way to value uh, trust in the social fabric of how we conduct ourselves online and the kind of impacts that that has back into the physical world. But also to be thinking through, I guess, what um, cybersecurity industry professionals would be saying, and Cyber has documented in another report that we did a number of years ago on in our cybersecurity industry roadmap, uh, secure by design principles really go, go a long way here. And we already know how to value from an economic standpoint how much more uh, economically efficient it is to build in security and privacy from the very beginning. So if you have the opportunity to do that, Absolutely. That's a huge step forward that any manufacturer of a product or service, whether that's involved in technology directly or not, because at some point your thing will touch technology, uh, is to take that secure by design approach and to understand how to do that. Well, of course, we've given the playbook on that. That's on our website uh, through that uh, industry roadmap, using a couple of different industries as examples around what kinds of things you can do to do that. But if you're involved in an existing platform, you can't really go back to zero. Uh, if we were to think about Google, uh, for example, or Microsoft taking their platforms back to zero, of course, it's not going to be economically uh, efficient for them to do that. So how can we help them as large technology pro um, providers that we all now rely on? Uh, how can we at the smaller end of the situation or even as a country help them to show a better way? And that comes down to, of course, how everyone can actually show leadership through the choices that they make. When you've got role models like parents saying that TikTok's awesome and I'm going to keep using it, even though very smart and intelligent people, including politicians, are saying that it shouldn't be used because it's uh, it's for evil, it's not for good, uh, it's pretty hard for kids to reject that. Uh, and so there's there's a whole range of things that we can do around that that make it easier for the right choices to be made. You mentioned quite a few times this notion of a behavioural approach and be it TikTok or other social media platforms, um, they are very good at hijacking our base psychology and, in fact, there's entire in, in Silicon Valley's case and I'm sure in the equivalent tech um, industry in China as well, there are entire business models devoted to how do we use well-known psychological tools to make people a, come to our platform, B, engage with our platform as much as possible, and then see some of those more pernicious things around engage with certain content, don't engage in certain ways. In When we're thinking about how we can use behavioural nudges or insights for good um, in you know, encouraging people to, to adopt secure practices, for instance, do we also need to think about how we limit the use of behavioural insights by others? And really that could extend across the board, whether that's a social media company from Silicon Valley or coming um, from China, do we need to think about how we get the creators of technology to use a little bit less of the psychological insight sometimes when that's resulting in bad outcomes for people and particularly for issues like social trust and social values more broadly? That's such an interesting question. I'd probably actually on the face of it say no. But what I would say, uh, because of course that might sound quite strange, from a commercial point of view, again, it's a bit like that whole sense of uh, humans taking, you know, the path of least resist resistance. A lot of these things are released to the to the market or to the community um, through that path of least resistance. Not always, but most of the time, and that's because that's the most economically efficient way for a company that is looking to make profit. Um, it exists to make profit, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, it's understanding when that needs to be tempered. And so thinking through things like how you would crowdsource uh, the kinds of value judgments that can be assigned to that particular type of technology, but also once it's been released, how many different use cases get generated 
that the creators of that technology could never have thought of. Uh, because of course, you know, there's user groups all over the world, um, you know, that could be using it in very, very different circumstances that come up with unique use cases that just could not have been thought of. The canonical example, I suppose, being the way that Facebook, Twitter and Google and others were used during the 2016 US presidential election. Some wonderful tools that had been uh, created for the purposes of, in those platforms' minds, good, um, freedom of speech and expression, but of course they were turned around and used for purposes uh, perhaps of less good by the Russian government to create polarisation and other nefarious things in the US. Indeed. And of course, from the Russian standpoint, without putting words in their mouth, and I would never want to, but, you know, uh, I think that they could equally say, well, this is our version of democracy in action. Uh, we saw a wrong that could have harmed our endeavours in the world and we sought to correct it. And so it always is through the lens that you're standing um, sort of behind at any given time. And of course, it's not just a singular lens anymore. And that's why I would say on the face of it, the answer to your question is no, because I would think that we wouldn't want to interfere with the innovation process that leads to the creation of a technology if we assume that that technology has been born out of good in the first place. Uh, but then also allow the sort of different knowledge infrastructures that sit around the way that that technology gets to market and then how that market deals with that technology to be able to have a more crowd sort of sourced way of giving uh, sort of infinite feedback loops into the situation. Uh, there's a whole range of different sort of social pressures that can be applied uh, to the reshaping and the reusing of different technologies and the way in which technologies intersect with each other. And that's a whole other ball game. I mean, that's almost another podcast, isn't it? The way in which, uh, you know, we have intersections of technologies happening now. Well, of course, we're all sort of, for those of us that are involved in the technology game, we're all sort of eyeing off what the quantum world really truly means in this endeavour. It will absolutely change everything that we're talking about right now. How do we assure trust in that environment? Well, let's actually sort of look at that as the end game and work back from that because there's a lot that we can take from thinking that way now. Uh, where everybody can be empowered to be able to make their own decisions and their own choices around how this plays out. And I sort of, you know, this can go to sort of, <clears throat> this can go to uh, legislation very, very quickly, but I would say that actually more powerful than legislation is the ability for us to remember in the policymaking game that anyone of any age who has spent time learning how to code and has spent time living in the world so can apply that code uh, and development of code into different circumstances uh, can be empowered to make change. They can also be empowered to do uh, harm, of course, but that's when we need to come back to those values and ethics that we stand for in a society and what kinds of mechanisms within institutions, including our education institutions, that instill those kinds of judgments, that critical thinking that is so imperative now to know whether or not something online doesn't quite feel right. Is that a bot that's talking to me or is that my friend that I connected with um, a couple of weeks ago who suddenly joined Facebook? You know, all of those kinds of things do come down to human intuition and that's where I think the actuaries would find it really, really hard. <laughs> if we're talking about empowering people to make value judgments, um, we mentioned before if you receive so many breach notices, you may as well just use them as wallpaper for all the impact that they have. A similar argument goes with the user terms of service for most of the digital tools that we use, be that our iPhone, Android, social media platforms. If we read them all, some studies in the US say it would almost be a full-time job. We'd have to spend more time per year doing that than we would on pretty much anything else. Is that the type of area where you think it would be productive for governments to step in to fix some information asymmetries in the tech market to let people make more informed choices? Is that a direction that you would like to see things go? I think that's a great direction. Uh, frankly speaking, though, I think that government needs to first look after its own backyard to mm -hmm. make sure that there can be community trust in its ability to step in. It is a good role for government to play. I think in the Australian context, though, uh, I would like to see concurrently to that a full analysis around the, uh, I guess, unintended consequences that are now happening around the interplay of legislation that happens within the economy. Uh, we've got a traditional, as all West Westminster systems do, a traditional sort of approach to how legislation is developed, which is in silos. 
Uh, we've got a, a reasonably or a comparatively small team of people sitting within the Attorney General's uh, department that is tasked with looking across the different silos of legislation. Absolutely, they can't keep pace with everything that's going on in the way that technology is being, is being used and nor has any other country really solved this. But what we could do, and I was talking just recently actually about uh, which country might crack this first, draw a line under the, the sort of way in which we currently develop legislation and look more first at the problem sets that are facing us, what problems need to be solved, and any time a specific problem comes up, draw it right up into that helicopter view and see what else is going on that uh, is of either a similar nature or could be of a similar nature and look at what we could adjust that already exists and or if there's something new that needs to be created, how could it be created in a way that is more principles-based and more risk-based than compliance-based? And indeed, of course, I, I did say uh, publicly last week that I feel like it could be New Zealand that cracks it first. And so I say it here now, Australia, we cannot let New Zealand win this. <laughs> Let's give this a go. I think that we can get this right. But it will take some leadership from government to be able to take a bit of a leap of faith in that uh, because, of course, there is some legislation that's still in play. If I look at a piece of legislation that I used to once upon a time spend a lot of time being a compliance officer for, for which is the Customs Act of 1901, it is the oldest piece of legislation that this country has. Uh, you know, obviously, it's the first thing that was enacted after the Constitution. Uh, it is still in play. Is it fit for purpose in a cyber physical world? Will somebody that used to look after the depot and warehouse licensing process of that, <laughs> Section 77 of the Customs Act, um, I would say no. And, of course, we've had to create a whole bunch of legislation and regulation, usually at the state level, to be able to try and keep pace with the way that the criminals are leveraging the Swiss cheese that now exists within this legislation. But what problem does the Customs Act try to solve? And how does that look in a world that also needs to look at uh, bioweapons and robotics and value chains that are a million layers deep? Uh, of course, we can't expect our customs officers to keep pace with that because the legislation hasn't. So is the legislation still fit for purpose? Well, baseline, yes, it is. Of course it is. I'm not going to challenge that. But what I will challenge is whether or not we keep adding on top of something that now has intersection with probably over 100 other acts within the Commonwealth, and that's before we get to the state and territory level. Um, so in a, in a cyber-physical world, I think we can take a different approach. Uh, and I'm only picking on the Customs Act because it's the, it's the, the oldest piece of legislation under our constitution. <laughs> I think that's to, just to draw some of the, the threads together and then we'll have to wrap up, I'm afraid. But it seems that there's a couple of principles here with our legislative approach. One is you mentioned before, you didn't use these words, but when talking about the Silk Road, that we, we shouldn't just be focused on playing whack-a-mole all the time. Sometimes the technological policy debate in Australia and indeed everywhere focuses on the topic du jour, whether that's TikTok, Silk Road, uh, encryption, and we want a legislative solution fast. And I think what you're saying is that we need to maybe think more in terms of principles than the circumstances of today because circumstances change quickly. They do change quickly, of course. Uh, some things stay the same. It's usually the humans that stay the same. Uh, but actually also I think, uh, you know, these, these kinds of questions and these kinds of considerations are really important because we do not want to stifle the very innovation that could solve these problems in an incredibly agile way. And of course, that's, you know, you, hint, you, you pointed at and hinted at my uh, other sort of, I guess, pet topic around um, encryption legislation. It's not my pet topic because I'm trying to advocate very strongly for all uh, legislation around encryption technologies to be removed. In fact, no, it is the opposite. We need to figure out the right balance between regulation and legislation in that field. Uh, it's a good one to focus on in this uh, in this kind of a context of the conversation because encryption legislations, uh, encryption technologies rather, are very much at the the cutting edge of how we really do stop badness. The biggest user of encryption in the world, at least according to another podcast I listen to, is the US Department of Defence. So mm -hmm. we often think of encryption bad. It's actually a supplier of security as well. Indeed. And uh, it is the kind of technology that can also assure privacy. Uh, and so when we look at um, one of the capability strengths that Australia has, for listeners that weren't aware, Australia invented quantum encryption, which has been commercialised and has been in play in the global economy for now 12 years, it was actually indeed invented on this very campus. 
Uh, and so when we look at the ways in which quantum encryption is now enabling uh, places like the USDOD uh, and other defence departments around the world, but also their military um, as well, we need we do need to strike the right balance. And it is that innovation which is so cutting edge that can help us have an advantage over our adversaries, whether they be somebody who is in that stereotypical basement, uh, which, by the way, it's largely not anymore uh, because it's become so professionalised, um, but it's become professionalised because there's so much opportunity out there for badness. But we need to have that innovation to stay ahead or have any chance of at least keeping pace. And so this is why, in my view, the legislation conversation is so important and will become even more important if we really do want to crack that nut on digital trust. That is a fantastic and sweeping tour through all things that make you tick. The final question, which we ask every one of our um, podcast guests on what does indeed make them tick, is to ask whether or not there is a particular moment in your life, a particular book you've read, even a podcast that you've listened to that's been really transformative in your career and shaping the way that you think. So is there one or two moments you could highlight for our listeners? Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about this actually because I, I am highly privileged to be sitting in the position I'm in, I think, uh, with all of the life experiences that I've had. Uh, I, I'll name two actually. And uh, the first one is that um, I grew up in a house of inventors. Uh, so my mum and dad were uh, food technologists and uh, they spent quite a bit of their early years uh, together. They met at UNSW. So the Vice-Chancellor of UNSW at the moment, uh, Ian, knows that I talk very proudly about being a product of uh, UNSW. I was, in, in fact, conceived on that campus uh, when <laughs> mum and dad were studying food technology back in the mid-70s. Uh, but it was, in fact, my dad that invented the Golden Gay Time and the Pine Lime Splice, and my mum invented the technology that enabled the liquid caramel within the caramel magnum to stay liquid, which is now technology that is used by NASA in space. And so sitting around the dinner table when they started their businesses and watching that entrepreneurial and inventor kind of uh, spirit thrive but also fail. We went through bankruptcy and I experienced that with them. That's such a formative set of experiences to be born out of uh, and so very, very um, privileged to have had those kinds of experiences and that's why I fight so hard for small business in Australia but for small business to be able to punch above its weight globally uh, and we are doing that in Australia across a whole range of different industries even if we haven't cracked the nut on communicating that effectively yet, that we do have household names in Australia but we just don't recognise them in Australia. Australia. So, you know, inventing quantum encryption, that is just incredible here in this country, like we did Wi-Fi, but also the pine lime splice. Uh, but, you know, I think there's sort of other uh, point around a formative experience. I did also, uh, in my time in government, have uh, the privilege of working for four prime ministers, well, five prime ministers that were four people. Uh, and I learned a huge amount uh, from both particularly Julia Gillard and Malcolm Turnbull. And I'd say that the the formative experiences from both of them uh, was actually around trust, watching the art of trust be woven into uh, trying to achieve outcomes to better this country. I'm so passionate about Australia. Uh, it's It's not that sort of flag-waving kind of passion. It's about us realising our potential. And I genuinely think we have the ability to do so because we already are starting to. Uh, so whether that's wearing a uniform on the battlefield right through to having an idea when you're sitting in the classroom in year 10 about how you're going to start your own business one day and everything in between. This country has so much, which is why we are the envy of the world and we're the uh, target for a lot of badness, uh, which is why we need to fight back. That's absolutely fantastic. And I should point out for our international listeners that the Golden Gay Time and the Splice are basically as classical Australian foods as you can get. They're possibly even more recognisable to some than Vegemite and Tim Tams. So that is an amazing story, <laughs> uh, Michelle. Um, and thank you so much, uh, not just for sharing that, that with us, but for joining us on the podcast today. I should also point out that Cyber has a podcast that will be coming to platforms near people soon. Where can they access that, Michelle? Yes, well, through. Thank you for the plug. What a, like This is like this crossover kind of thing, isn't it? <laughs> um, this, that's wonderful. Thank you. So Cyber Unlocked uh, is about to be launched. Uh, so for listeners uh, that are listening back on this, it will be July. Uh, and yes, through your favourite podcast medium, you'll be able to find Cyber O-Z Cyber Unlocked very soon. 
Amazing. Well, um, you can go off platform and listen there, but do try and come back to us. You can find us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or at the NatSec Pod, which is masterfully handled by my co-host Chris Farnham. Also, you could join our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod or get in touch the old-fashioned way, email podcast at policyforum.net. And, of course, be sure to hit the subscribe button and even give us a rating if you feel so inclined, hopefully even a good one. And in the meantime, though, we'll speak to you on the next episode of the National Security Podcast soon. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.